right. Good morning, TRBC. Good morning. It is great to see you guys. It's been a while. Very, very happy to be here. Um, both me and my lovely wife now, Jennifer, been happily married for, what is it, a year and six months almost? Time flies when you're having fun, but we're really, really happy to be with you guys. Um, definitely excited to be digging into the word today with uh, Daniel chapter 10. And so um, I think it's going to be a, a really special um, sermon, I think in particular for me, and, and I pray and hope for you guys as well too. God has really spoken to me um, with this section of scripture, and it's actually been key for the Lord just really doing a, a great work I found in my own life, in my faith, um, and trusting him and understanding uh, that there's more that's happening behind the scenes than we realize. And so with that being said, let's just open up in a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to get right into it. Father God, I just want to thank you so much um, for this time, just being here today. Um, thank you for the wonderful weather, for your kindness toward us, for your grace that you show us every single moment, Lord. I just pray and ask right now that um, it wouldn't be me and my own words or, or necessarily my own thoughts, so to speak, Lord, that are going to be communicated, but helping to speak from your Holy Spirit. Um, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word, to what you have to say, and that um, your, your spirit would just do a great work in our hearts and lives, Lord, that we would trust you, that we would persevere in faith, that we would be warriors. I ask this and, and pray deeply for this in your name. Amen. All right, great. So if, if you're taking notes, um, the name of this sermon is Wisdom and Perseverance in Spiritual Warfare, um, because this is going to be a, a, a big chapter talking about spiritual warfare. So we're going to turn to Daniel 10, and I'm going to read the chapter, and then we're going to investigate it. So it says here, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Beltesasher. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Ufaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color and the sounds of his words like the voice of the multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, 
for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to understand Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face to the ground and became speechless. And suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, my Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk, talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me, nor is there any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. And he said, Do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I've gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. So really, really crazy, intense stuff is happening here in Daniel chapter 10. I remember years ago when I had first found out about this section of scripture, either through a Bible study or a sermon that I heard, um, it it really blew me away. And it shows us right here that there's a lot more that is happening around us in the world, um, both on a a global scale, but also on an individual scale than we realize And so we know the physical world is a place where we have societies, we have kingdoms, we have organizations, right? We have uh, initiatives and political intrigue. We live in a very complex and active world. I mean, just turn on the news and you'll see all sorts of plans and events happening, right? And so what I found oftentimes in perhaps maybe the modern casual eye when it comes to things of the church, things of a spiritual nature is we kind of get this idea that maybe, maybe, you know, the spiritual realm is kind of empty almost, you know, you have angels with cute little baby wings floating by maybe playing harps in the heavenly places or something like that. And demons are these guys with horns and pitchforks and, 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 you know, forks tail or whatever, But this is kind of like a a make-believe version of the spiritual world. It's actually not a biblical worldview of the unseen realm. And so we see here in Daniel, as well as other verses that we're going to take a look at, that the spiritual world is actually quite complex. It, It is a vast network of spiritual beings, spiritual personalities, either aligned with God and are working to further God's purposes or aligned against God, aligned with Satan, and and they're working to stop God's purposes. 
And so there are real spiritual organizations and, and orders and plans and systems that are happening. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's quite analogous to the way that we order human societies, governments and, and things like that. So there's a few themes that I definitely want to tackle with the time that we have in Daniel chapter 10. Um, one of them being Daniel's own actions and his attitudes in times of trial. A second theme that I also want us to take a look at is the power of God's glory. A third is God's faithful love in times of trial. And in the last two, the fourth is spiritual warfare in the physical world. And in the last one being God's good purposes that he's accomplishing through the saints. So let's just set some context right now. So at at this point in the story, uh, Daniel's probably around in his 80s. That's what historians estimate his age to be at this point, by the time that Cyrus comes to rule. And so Daniel's career has spanned four different kings or administrations, if you will. So we know that he started when the Babylonian captivity happened. Um, And so he was brought in by King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, raised basically to learn their culture and, and their ways of life. And Daniel doesn't compromise. You know, he remains faithful to the Lord. He remains faithful to his God and his practices in worshiping God. So the three other kings that Daniel serves under is Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, uh, King Darius, who was of the Medes. And then finally, we have Cyrus, who is the king of Persia. And that's where Daniel 10 takes place. So Daniel 10 is an introduction to his fourth and final recorded vision in scripture. And this takes place two years after the last vision that he had, which we read about in the previous chapter, in chapter nine. And so the whole vision uh, that Daniel has in chapter 10 is actually explained across three chapters. So 10, 11, and 12, those all should be read ultimately as one unit. Obviously, I'm only going to cover chapter 10 because I don't want to keep you guys here for like four hours. But Though those three chapters really are a single unit to really understand the breadth of Daniel's vision and the implications of it and so forth. So around this time, Cyrus had already issued the decree for the Jews to return to Jerusalem uh, to, re- to set the foundation, start rebuilding the temple. This happened around 538 BC. Now, one fun fact um, about this is that this was predicted around 150 years before Cyrus's decree. And we read that in the books of Jeremiah and Isaiah. And one of the things that really, really blew me away um, with Daniel, honestly, is just how clearly supernatural this book is. Um, Just to take a little apologetic side note, if you ever wanted to find like some real hard evidence of the Bible's divinity, the book of Daniel I would say is almost bar none. Um, Historians easily, easily know that this has taken place before Cyrus's rule. Um, Other things the book of Daniel talks about too, such as the fall of Persia and the rise of Greece, which we're going to be talking about. And even the minute details that take place leading up to that, secular historians clearly identify that these prophecies were written down before those events, like centuries before those events. And it's been to the point where secular historians have looked at the book of Daniel and literally said, I don't know what to do with this. 
Clearly, our methods show this happened way before these events of Persia and Greece, and it predicted it down to the T. We don't know what to do with that. So I, for me, I found that the book of Daniel has been a huge encouragement to my faith. I mean, right there, you see some very, very clear indications that scripture is divine. You know, this is something that did not come from mere people, but came from the Lord to tell us about the things to come and to encourage us. So starting here in verse one, some com- commentators uh, view verse one almost as an introduction that was added by a commentator who had c- compiled Daniel's writings. And so we see here that this message is revealed to him, and it notes the fact of Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. And so it's a reminder that, once again, Daniel is still experiencing the midst of Israel's exile. He's still experiencing this captivity. While we have some of the Jews who have returned back to the land because of Cyrus's decree, um, Israel's still not okay. You know, they have still fallen very far from the glory that they previously had enjoyed um, in the covenant. And so in verse two, we see here that Daniel was mourning for three full weeks. Some of the thoughts that I I had here in thinking about this is it brings me back to Daniel chapter one, when he had refused to defile himself with the king's goods and, and his food. And so I almost imagine that perhaps in during this time of mourning, Daniel had regulated his diet back to what he did when he was young, only eating vegetables and water. Because we see here in verse three, it says that he ate no pleasant food, no, no meat, no wine, um, nor did he anoint himself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And so we know that anointing uh, back during ancient times was basically a way of cleaning oneself and also adding some nice smells to oneself or kind of, kind of a way of almost perfuming yourself. And so during times of mourning, it was customary to essentially avoid pleasure, you know, essentially avoiding taking care of yourself. You are just focused on expressing your grief. You are in a state of self-denial. And that's exactly what Daniel is doing here. And another interesting thing to note is that Daniel was in such sorrow that he even goes through self-denial through Passover. And so if you, if you look at the timing, he had stopped fasting. We read later in the chapter in the first month of the Hebrew calendar, day 24. Well, Passover starts on day 14. And one of the feasts that we know in particular, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that takes place uh, days 15 through 21 during that month. And Daniel did not eat meat. He, he didn't have wine or any good food, so to speak. So it must have meant that he, in some way, shape, or fashion, partially fasted through Passover. And that just goes to show you the depth of the pain, the depth of the sorrow and mourning that he's feeling, that he's even foregoing these standard religious uh, holidays. So some things that I want to note here as well is what are some things that Daniel may have been in sorrow over? Well, I think... One thing we can definitely know for sure is sorrow over Israel's rebellion. In Daniel chapter 9, he has that magnificent prayer of repentance, acknowledging how the nation had fallen away from God. Um, There's also sorrow, of course, over Israel's fall. We know that the Jews lamented what had happened to their home, to their country. 
Also, too, there's his sorrow over Israel's future. I could only imagine that if a divine being came and basically told you that your family was going to be pillaged and ransacked and oppressed and attacked, you know, years to come in the future, you, you would feel very burdened about that. You'd wonder what's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to my, my kinsmen? And then lastly, I think there was also mourning over Israel's apathy. We know that only a remnant had returned to Jerusalem. And even then, there was a lot of obstacles they had to face in starting to rebuild the temple, both obstacles from people who want to stop the Jews, but also times from the Jews being discouraged or even spiritually apathetic themselves. So there was a lot that was on Daniel's heart and mind during this time of mourning. The next thing that I want to note here, which is something that is really amazing, is Daniel's attitude during his time of this sorrow. And and there's four main points that I want to point out with his attitude, with his actions before God. The first is that Daniel acknowledges reality. He acknowledges reality. He doesn't enter into the state of trying to spiritualize and explain away the severity of the situation. And how many times for us as believers have maybe we or even other Christians relied on maybe Christian platitudes to kind of avoid the pain of what we're going through? You know, like God has a plan or, you know, there's a reason for everything. I'm not saying those things aren't true because they are. But I think at times we as a people of God can really fall into using those things as a way of not really feeling the gravity of what we're going through. And I don't really think that's healthy. Right? Like, like God is big enough for our sorrow. God is big enough for us to come to him and for us to lament. You don't have to pretend. And so we see here that God, that Daniel acknowledges reality before God. The second thing he does is he humbles himself. And we see that in his self-denial. We see that in his morning. Daniel is willing to just lay it all before the Lord. There is no pride. There is no anger against God or anything like that. The third is that he pours out his pain to God. So, and and this is related to the first point of acknowledging reality, but I'm going to explain to you the difference. You can acknowledge something as bad and still completely block out God. You can go and pour out your heart to a friend. You can go and pour out your heart to your therapist or whoever you want to go and talk to. But Daniel doesn't simply stop with acknowledging reality. He then turns to God and he's expressing it to God, right? And then the last thing here that I want to point out is that he is seeking God in the midst of this. So he's not simply saying, Lord, this is my sorrow. This is my pain. He is now seeking God's wisdom on the matter. He's turning to the Lord. He's seeking to cling to God. He's not running away from him. He's like, God, show me what is going on. Explain this to me. A way you can look at this too, with the four points I just made is also in reverse the temptations that Daniel resisted. And so he doesn't deny his pain. He doesn't deny his reality, right? The second is he doesn't blame God of wrongdoing. And I, and I want to take a, a moment on this point right here. 
I want to say God is big enough for our questions. All right. He's big enough for us to ask why he's big enough for us to say, Hey, God, this just, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. I have no idea what you're doing. This seems crazy to me. It seems dark. It seems horrible. I don't get it. He's big enough for all of those things. But scripture is very clear that there's a certain kind of attitude that we can choose to approach God. We can approach God from this attitude of questioning and even anger and disappointment from a standpoint of humility, or we can approach God from a standpoint of wanting to be judge. And I don't know about you guys, but I know in particular, this is an area that I tend to struggle with when I go through hard times. I tend to very much want to enter a place where it's like, God, I I don't know about this. I think you might've gotten it wrong. Right. But, but we know that's not, that's not the case at all. This is God who we're talking about. Right. And so there's this balance that I, I do want to communicate, which is we have space to ask God questions. As a matter of fact, if you're not asking God questions, it almost makes me wonder, are you avoiding facing what's going on? Are you avoiding asking the questions because of fear? We have space to ask God questions, but we ask him from a place of humility. We approach him not trying to get into the the judgment seat and say, God, you did it wrong. But we ask God questions from a place of, Lord, I don't get this. I don't like it, but show me. What are you trying to show me, right? So he doesn't blame God of wrongdoing. Um, The third is he doesn't pretend or perform perform for God. And that kind of goes to the whole spiritualizing I was talking to you guys about. And then the last one, which corresponds to him seeking God, is he doesn't ignore or reject God. One of the things that I found that can be particularly insidious when we as believers go through suffering is we, we might not fall into the trap of, I'm angry at God. I'm turning away from him. I'm just like an outright rebellion. But have you ever had those moments, you know, you're going through a hard time and like your heart just kind of gets cold. You know, you're not, you're not necessarily like accusing God of anything, but it's kind of like, I don't really feel like praying today. I don't really feel like going to church or yeah, I'm at church, but I'm checking out, you know, I'm not really, God's not really on my radar right now. You know, I'm just so hurt by what's going on. I'm starting to feel kind of apathetic about things. And what I want to point out here is not only does Daniel resist accusing God, he resists allowing his pain to make him apathetic. You see what I'm saying there? And I think that could particularly be a really sneaky way that Satan tries to get at us where when we go through hard times, you may not be the person who's like, well, I don't believe in God anymore, or I'm going to go and completely live contrary to, to scripture. But the devil can try and sow those seeds of apathy. You know, your love for God just grows colder. You don't really care as much maybe about sharing your faith with other people about, about really staying mentally and spiritually connected, right. With scripture, with other believers, And I've gone through that. I've gone through both, quite frankly, the rebellion phase and the apathy phase. And I think in some way, shape or form, we all have. 
you know? But right here, we see that Daniel doesn't slide into that. He's not ignoring God. He's not getting apathetic toward God. Now, moving further here, we see that on the, on the 24th day of the first month, in verse 4, he's by the river Tigris. He lifts up his eyes, and he has this vision of a man clothed in linen. So we know, obviously, during ancient times, the standard way of dressing would be in a, a, a linen garb that would go you know, from your neck all the way down to your feet. And so this man clothed in linen has this golden belt or, or sash around his waist. And so these, these belts of sorts were used in ancient times, not only to kind of keep your clothing together, but also as a pockets in a sense. So people would be carrying money or supplies or various articles that they were traveling with in these belts that they would wrap around their waists. And so there's this brilliant gold belt that this, this mysterious man has. And then he describes his appearance. Body like was like barrel. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. And the sounds of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I particularly love that last descriptor there. So basically, when this being spoke, it was like a thousand people were speaking at the same time, something crazy like that. And so in response to this vision, Daniel, he has no strength, literally falls flat on his face before this being. And then the men that were with him, they didn't see anything. However, a great terror fell upon them. So in other words, whoever this mysterious visitor was, their presence was so awesome, so terrifying, so powerful, that even though the other people with Daniel couldn't see, they felt that something was here. Something far beyond whatever they could ever imagine was here. And their response was, I need to hide. I don't know what's going on. Someone's here who is crazy powerful. I got to hide. This is terrifying. Now, a lot of commentators have a lot of different opinions on who this mystery man is. Um, some suggest that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Some suggest that this is an angel, perhaps maybe the angel Gabriel, who we know had appeared to Daniel earlier when it came to delivering uh, interpretations. Um, in my study with this, I personally believe that this glorious man in linen is Jesus. And I'm going to give you uh, five reasons why I think so. So the biggest reason and, and really kind of like the, the linchpin for why I think that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ is really this description that we see paralleled in Revelations. Um, Revelations chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, have this description that almost parallels what we see here in Daniel chapter 10. And so just to summarize that in Revelations 1, we know that Revelations is, is the book revealing 
uh, Jesus Christ and, and what the Lord will do in the end times. And this was a revelation that was given to John. And so in this vision that John has in the opening of the book, once again, a vision, right? Talking about the future. So we see the parallels are already starting. Um, there's this description of one who looks like the son of man walking among these seven uh, candlesticks. And so right here in this description, we have here that this, this visitor was described as being clothed with a garment down to the feet. In Daniel 10, it mentions a man in linen. We also have here that in Revelations, uh, the son of man, Christ, he's described as being girded about the chest with a golden band. We have the waist girded with gold in Daniel 10. His countenance was shining like the sun, it says in Revelations. And in Daniel 10, we notice two things here. His body was like beryl. Um, some other translations render that word as chrysolite. And basically, a, it's a very brilliant, shiny, precious stone. All right? And then also in Daniel 10, we notice that it says here that this visitor, his face was like the appearance of lightning. In Revelations, it talks about the fact that his countenance was shining like the sun. Looking from, uh, further in Revelations, his eyes like a flame of fire, eyes like torches of fire mentioned in Daniel. Revelations, his feet were like fine brass. We see the same thing in Daniel. And then lastly, his voice was like the sound of many waters, right? Or many sounds happening at once. Um, a, a great example for this and this is the image I always think about every time I hear that vo- uh, verse. I remember traveling to Niagara Falls um, with my cousin's family on, a, on vacation years ago. And during the trip, there's this one section that they have where they have caves behind Niagara Falls. And so you can actually come right up to the guardrail and you just have, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of gallons of water just like rushing down, falling right in front of your face. And you can just, you can like almost feel the power of that magnitude of material just rushing past you and just the sound that it makes, right? That's kind of what I think about when I hear this. So his voice as a sound of many waters. In Daniel 10, the sounds of his words like the voice of a multitude. So that's that's the first and, and biggest reason that I think that this is the Lord Jesus, but I'm going to give some more reasons. We note here that Daniel's reaction to this man in linen is way stronger than his reaction to Gabriel that we see in Daniel chapter eight. When Gabriel came before him, Daniel was afraid and he fell on his face and went through the whole fainting and passing out thing, but he only needed to be strengthened once here in Daniel chapter 10 when he's face-to-face with the glorious man, he needs to be strengthened three times to be back in a place where he could fully be conscious and communicating. Verse 10, he was strengthened and was shaking pretty much on his hands and knees. Verse 16, he was strengthened again so he could actually stand. And in verse 18, he was strengthened one final time so he could actually speak. So this encounter with this man in linen seems to have been way more powerful than what he encountered earlier in chapter eight. I'm going to give you three more reasons. Daniel's reaction to the glorious man is also very similar to other people's reactions when they meet God. 
and I'm not going to do a survey of all the scripture behind it, but plenty of other prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, when they come before the presence of the Lord, they are absolutely awestruck. They're passing out. They can't speak. They fall on their face in, in reverence and fear. The fourth reason I have here too, and this is a very interesting one. It appears that this man in linen has greater authority knowledge, and I would say subsequently greater power than other spiritual beings with him. And I'm going to work this out. So the man in linen that we see here in Daniel 10 appears to be the very same person mentioned later in Daniel 12. And this being, we learn in Daniel 12, when he appears to Daniel, he's actually not even standing on the ground. He's actually hovering above the river as Daniel looks at him. And he's identified again in Daniel 12. This connects him to the disembodied voice in Daniel 17 that tells the angel Gabriel to explain the vision to Daniel. Because the disembodied voice in Daniel 7 was a voice, once again, that was above the river. Now, this was a different river. This wasn't the river Tigris. That was the river Uli in Daniel 7. But we see, once again, this appearance of a being, a man, a presence above a river. And in Daniel 7, this presence above the river tells the angel Gabriel, hey, tell Daniel this is what the vision means. Clearly, this is a being of authority. The other point that I want to make about this, too, is that in Scripture, the only times we see a voice, a disembodied voice of command is when God is speaking revelation to someone. We don't see angels doing that. When angels appear, there is a a, a physical manifestation. But when we have the voice of glory coming down, it's identified that is the voice of God giving command. Not only that, too, as I said earlier, this voice directs the angel Gabriel. And we know that from scripture, only God is the one that has the authority to direct angels and they obey him. The other two points that I want to confirm here is that in Daniel 12, going back to the man hovering above the river, the man in linen, other angelic beings ask this figure a question about the prophecies that are being given. And this indicates he knew something that the other angelic beings didn't know. And obviously we know by scripture that while angels are powerful and impressive beings, they don't know everything. And we even know by other scriptures, and I'm going to get to that later, that as a matter of fact, there's actually things that the angels desire to look into. We're going to talk about that, right? And so here we have angelic beings asking this figure, what does this mean? That happens in in Daniel 12. Uh, The last point that I want to make here, and this is a very, very interesting point, is God has previously manifested and traveled with angels before. And the key verse there is in Genesis 18, when the Lord talks with Abraham, it says three men came to visit Abraham. And later on, we learn in that chapter that one of them is identified as being the Lord. One of those visitors is identified or, or, or being connected with essentially, hey, God is with you right now. This is the Lord talking to you. So in other words, God has traveled with an entourage before. And so, so basically these five reasons, at least for me, allow me to comfortably feel like this is a pre-incarnate 
appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just see a lot of analogies and connections with that. Now, one might ask, okay, well, what about the fact that um, we have this voice telling Daniel that, hey, the reason I couldn't reach you in time um, as soon as you start praying was because I was being stopped by another being called the Prince of Persia. Some commentators have mentioned, well, who's speaking there, right? And I think the answer is very easily uh, met by simply saying that I believe that this was God in, in a manifested physical form with other angels. And so the ones who were speaking to Daniel and said, hey, I was being held up by the Prince of Persia, that was another being. That wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's also supported once again, because we know God has traveled with his angels previously. So we see here, once again, Daniel is overcome by this vision. Um, And so after being strengthened, something astounding happens here that we see in verse 11. The first thing that one of these angels who has accompanied the Lord says to Daniel is, oh, Daniel, man, greatly beloved. And I want to take a moment to really work that out. So the word there, when he calls Daniel a man greatly beloved, that word beloved is the Hebrew word hemda, which means precious or desired or coveted, like wanted. So essentially what this angelic being is telling Daniel is that you are greatly loved. You are desired. You are wanted. You are considered precious. And so the next question you might think is, well, by who? Well, we see that this angelic being says, I have been sent to you. And obviously the understanding is that God is the one that has sent me. So the one that loves you, the one that desires you, the one that wants you is God. And so right here, the first thing that this angelic messenger does is he reassures Daniel of God's love and care. And for me, when I first had really got that, I would say maybe last year, um, it blew me away. And put yourself in Daniel's shoes. And I'm, I'm sure we all can, because we've all had moments where we have been praying about something. We've been waiting for something. We're in this state of darkness, right? And the one thing that this angelic being takes the time to do first is that, hey, Daniel, do not think that this delay, this confusion, this pain that you're in, don't believe that this means somehow God forgot about you. Don't believe that it means God doesn't love you. God has has never stopped loving you. And and I want to emphasize an aspect of that word too when when he says man greatly beloved. It's not simply hey, God loves you and loves you greatly. There's also the aspect of that word in the Hebrew that I said is desired or wanted. In other words, God wants you. You are precious to him. Like you are a wanted child. You're not a nobody. Like God has been watching you. God cares about you. You're in God's heart. That amazes me. And so the the idea that we almost even have Two, in this exchange, has been that God's eye has been intently on Daniel. 
And for me, I almost get the sense that the Lord in a way was like at the edge of his seat in joy toward his servant, you know, because look at what it says here. It's, it says right there in verse 12, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words right there, right, 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 right there. He says, Daniel, I want to explain to you why I'm a bit late. It's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because God forgot about you. As a matter of fact, it's this, your thought, maybe that maybe God has forgotten, completely wrong. As soon, Daniel, as soon as you set your heart to understand, as soon as you set yourself to seek God, God was like, go, go to him right now. Go, 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 go. Like, sorry, I'm getting real excited because God really spoke to me through this. I was going through some really hard times. And like when it finally clicked, I was like, wow, that's incredible. Um, God cares. And he moved immediately as he saw Daniel was seeking him. And so we need to understand this point here because it's something that is going to be critical for our perseverance during times of trial, during times of confusion. God's love is not reflected by your circumstances. And I want to say that again. God's love is not reflective of your circumstances. If you're having a really great time or period in your life, it doesn't mean somehow that God is loving you more. And if you're in a really hard time in your life, it doesn't mean that God is loving you less. Uh, God's love and care for us is indestructible. And I really, really, really want to emphasize this point. If we are going to thrive and mature in our spiritual walk, we have to believe this. We have to believe this. You know, part of the things that I've talked to people about in, in my stories, I've had times of trial in my life that really shook my confidence in a loving God. Just to be completely honest, just 100%. And one of the greatest works that God has been doing in my heart is being sincerely convinced of his love. And I'm not even saying like theologically, like in my head, but like literally, like I think about God and I feel his love and I'm like, it's real. You know, like it's really real. Like it's not, it's not fake. It's real. It's practical. It helps me in the here and now. It helps me in eternity. He's there with me. And I've had to struggle to, to get to this point currently in my walk with Christ. Um, but God has done a lot of healing in my life. I'd say even in particular the last year in understanding and learning how to separate what I'm going through from my view of God. You see what I'm saying? Circumstances are not reflective of God's love. And we know that ultimately because of what he did, giving us his son. I had a talk with a friend about this. And I said, you know, one of the things that the Holy Spirit has really been drilling deep into my heart is kind of like almost this like train of logic in my head where it's like, when I feel like God doesn't love me, where the Holy Spirit kind of brings me is like, all right, well, do you believe 
that God gave his son. Don't, don't even worry about what you're viewing God. Just do you believe Jesus Christ is real? He existed. He died and rose again for your sins. And God gave his son up for you. I'm like, yes, I do believe that. And then this thing happens where the logic all of a sudden hits me. And I'm like, it's not possible for God to hate me and give me Jesus. Like, it's not po- like if God didn't love me, right? And the circumstances are saying, oh, God doesn't love you. Why would he sacrifice his son? Like, why, why, why would someone give up their own kid for someone they hate? That wouldn't happen. And for, for me, the Holy Spirit's been, I guess, helping me to really start to understand that. Like, God gave up his one and only son. Like, the father went through sorrow. And yes, I do believe the father went through sorrow in the giving up of his son. I do believe that. I don't have time to theologically go through all of that. But the father went through that pain of giving up his son to get you. He loves you a whole lot to do that. All of us. And we see that right here in Daniel. This this angelic being takes time to say, Daniel, you're a man who is greatly beloved. This delay has not happened because God somehow doesn't love you. There's something else that is going on here. But I want you to understand God loves you and God wants you. So we then get to some of the really interesting stuff here. In verse 13, he mentions that the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So we're going to have a little primer on spiritual beings and biblical cosmology 101 in like hopefully just a few minutes. I'm going to keep it to a few minutes. Like I said, I'm not trying to keep you here for four hours, but this right here, there is so much that's going on in this one verse. Like it's it absolutely the insight into the spiritual world here is incredible. And this has really been a key understanding for a lot of theologians, a lot of Bible teachers um, in realizing there's more that's going on than we realize right? So let's start with the question, who is the prince of Persia? Well, we already know that this messenger to Daniel um, is a supernatural being. So clearly the prince of Persia could not be talking about a mere human um, because humans cannot restrain spirits um, unless you're given power from some other kind of source. Uh, But not only do we see that this angelic being was simply restrained. He was restrained for 21 days, not a day, 21 days. So obviously the context would lend itself that the Prince of Persia is referring to another spiritual being and apparently one of great power. And so here's another question. And obviously we can know that what the answer is, but I still want to tease this out. There are spiritual beings What side is the Prince of Persia on? Well, if this angelic being has come in representation of God to do God's bidding, to give a message that God has, clearly this Prince of Persia is against the purposes of God 
Otherwise, he would have never tried to stop this angelic being. If anything, he would have helped the angel, right? So in conclusion, the prince of Persia, and later on we read about the prince of Greece, these are evil spiritual beings that we're talking about. And what's very fascinating about them is that they are associated with particular kingdoms. So they're they're not simply nameless fallen beings by the road who's just like, let me stop this guy. They have a particular jurisdiction that they operate in. We're going to tease this out some more, but I want to take a moment to ask the question, who is Michael, uh, the prince of Israel? Well, right there. He also is a spiritual being, and we know through scripture, both in Daniel and other scriptures, he's identified as the angel that oversees God's people, Israel, as well as the church. Uh, In other verses in the New Testament, he is called uh, the archangel. Here in Daniel, he's called one of the chief princes. So this indicates he holds a position of very high authority and power. And actually, as a matter of fact, in Revelations 12, it mentions the fact that Michael, the archangel, led the angels of God in a cosmic war against the devil and his angels. And they won. And as a result, Satan and his fallen angels no longer had a place in heaven. They were kicked out of God's presence. So it appears here that Michael himself is also a very, very powerful spiritual being and one who holds a very prominent place in the economy of God. And so Looking at the whole overview and really getting a biblical understanding of cosmology, which is basically the study of the universe, how things work, what is reality, right? There are two classes of rational and moral, and another way you could look at moral is, in a sense, God-conscious beings. Two classes of rational, moral beings. Humans, right, like us in the flesh, and then heavenly beings, angels, and then the fallen angels, the demons. And so what's really, really fascinating about this too, is we do have references to these spiritual beings throughout the Old Testament. They, they tease it and discuss it a little bit differently than in the New Testament, but it is there. For instance, the, the Hebrew word for, for God oftentimes, in, in terms of a title, uh, when you look in the Hebrew, is El. And the understanding of El basically is mighty one or powerful one, the strong one, right? It's used of God. And then we have another word, which is a plural derivative of El, Elohim, which basically means the mighty ones. And depending on the context in the Old Testament, this at times can refer to angelic beings, or it can even refer to um, very mighty human rulers, depending on context. And so we know that the spiritual beings were created by God. We know that looking at a survey of various verses within scripture, and we know at some point they were created prior to humans. And we have that where we see in Job 38 verses four through seven, it talks about the fact that the sons of God rejoiced. They sang for joy. They shouted for joy when the Lord, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, laid the foundations of the earth. So The heavenly host at some point were created prior to the formation, at least of of earth. Some other interesting facts, right, about heavenly beings is that they are intelligent, 
they have emotions and they do have individual personalities and wills. And we see that with the fact that the angels can rejoice. Um, we know in Revelations, it talks about the fact that Satan represented as a dragon um, is furious that he got kicked out of heaven. And because he knows his time is short, we know um, scriptures talk about the fact that even the demons believe and they tremble. So spiritual beings can have fear, right? So we see here that they are intelligent, they have emotions, and they have personalities and wills. I don't want any of us to fall for this weird idea that somehow angels and fallen angels, okay, demons are like less than a person, or they're like a force of some sort. And sometimes maybe in media or video games or TV shows, they might be presented as that. But the angelic hosts are people. They're not human people, but they are persons. They have personhood. They think. They communicate. They do things. They have activities. They enact plans. They can be angry. They can be rejoiceful. They have personality. They are persons, spiritual persons. And so we know that they normally don't have physical bodies. We know that their mode of existence is pure spirit. And we know that because of the, the nature of who they are and how God has made them, their, their essence, um, that the angelic host, they are far mightier and have higher knowledge than, than human beings. We say that once again, a whole lot of verses, a one really crazy example of their power um, was during one of Israel's Old Testament battles where an angel of the Lord came and killed 185,000 troops of the opposing army. One angel decimated an entire army. However, we also know that God is greater than all the heavenly beings. So although they are the spiritual personalities capable of great might and power, God is infinitely above all of them. I mean, in, in Colossians, we heard during breaking of bread, the fact that through Jesus, everything has been made, seen and unseen. All powers, principalities, thrones, dominions, all have come from God. And clearly, you know, only the stronger can, can create or give life to the weaker. So God is above all of them. They all are subject to his power and authority. And so as a result, whereas they are also spiritual beings, God is the only spirit that is deserving of worship and ultimate fidelity and commitment. And so we know that there's two groups of them, right? We have angels in Hebrew. They're known as Malach or in the Greek, Angelos, which basically means a messenger or an envoy. And the way we kind of parsed out the word is angels refers to the good guys on God's side and then evil spirits. That's what you see in the old Testament. You don't really see the word he, uh, demon appearing in the old Testament. You really see like evil spirit in Hebrew. It's Ra rah, Ra meaning bad rock meaning spirit, right? The demons are those who have rebelled against God. And so right in the midst of Daniel, we see this, this cosmic battle being played out on a national scale. The next thing that I want to note here in Daniel chapter 13, in Daniel 10, 13, is it says here 
that the prince of the kingdom of Persia, this evil spiritual being of considerable, considerable power, held back this other angelic being for 21 days. And what's very fascinating about that is that's exactly the same amount of time that Daniel was in self-denial, seeking God and mourning and, and pleading and praying. Daniel was in a state of prayer and, and, and deep seeking the Lord and battle essentially for 21 days. And unknown to him in the unseen realm, there was another battle that took place for 21 days. And that's no mistake. And neither is it a coincidence. There is a link there. And it seems that what the author is trying to show us here is that Daniel's conflict in the flesh, in the physical realm, is linked to the conflict that was happening in the spiritual realms. And here's the amazing thing about this. It is completely reasonable to believe that in the same way God has a plan, Satan has a plan. In the same way God is specifically enacting certain programs in human history, Satan is also enacting certain programs in human history. And furthermore, based off of this, it is completely reasonable to believe that the fallen spirits in this world are literally assigned territories. Now, that's not a superstitious thing, nor is that a, dare I say, like crazy, charismatic, weird thing. That's a biblical thing. And we know that because the Prince of Persia isn't just some kind of one-off comment. The angel says, after the Prince of Persia happens, I'm going to have to deal with the Prince of Greece, another spiritual being associated with the kingdom of Greece. And the amazing thing that we know Obviously, looking back into history, what was happening at the time? Well, we know that Israel was into exile. We know that Persia was a kingdom that essentially um, had Israel in bondage, right? Israel didn't have any sovereignty of their own. They were subject to Persia. After the Persian Empire falls, guess what the next empire is? Greece. You have the rise of Alexander the Great, and then his kingdom falls. It splits into four. That's going to be further in Daniel 11, right? And then the Greek empire ends up persecuting the Jews corresponds exactly to this idea of a spiritual being of Persia fighting against God's people. And then another spiritual being of Greece who then comes, takes his place and continues the fight against God's people. So what does this mean then for us, for us as human beings, we clearly have a role to play in the spiritual physical war. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6 is a very, very fascinating chapter talking about this. And I want to read to you all uh, the verses here. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, it says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. That is physical means, natural means. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And the point that I want to emphasize here, this is not figurative language that the apostle Paul is using guys. It's, it's, it's not figurative language. This isn't him trying to say figuratively, like 
we're involved in like a figurative war against Satan. And, you know, we figuratively have these weapons that we, no, he's like, no, this is an actual war. Like this is an actual battle. And we actually use real weapons, not fit like real weapons, not figurative weapons, not imaginary weapons, unseen weapons. And he teases out, he tells us, this is the kind of nature of the warfare. It's against arguments and it's against every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. In other words, it's a war of ideologies. It's a war of ideas and thoughts about what is the nature of reality? What is the nature of of what is right and wrong? Who is the one that is in charge? Who is the one that is in control? These are huge questions. And there are real spiritual agents that seek to darken humanity's understanding of truth. We are in a real battle against truth. And for us as believers, understanding that would help to inspire us to get in the fight. Obviously, we know uh, another really, really popular um, verse about spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. And, and we know about the sword of the spirit, you know, the shield of faith, all those different articles that, it, that um, it talks about. One of the things that's very interesting is at the end of talking about putting on this armor of God, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing. The apostle Paul ends with saying, after, you know, you're, you've been all armored up, faith, the sword of the spirit, the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, all these different things. He mentions in verse 18 of Ephesians 6, to pray continually in the spirit. And he specifically says to be alert, persevere, pray for other believers constantly. And once again, that's not figurative. That's not symbolic. When he says stay alert, he literally means stay alert. I remember reading um, something that was really interesting. This one excerpt excerpt from a, a missionary couple. And they were were missionaries over in the Middle East. And they talked a lot about just how God really showed up in amazing and honestly at times supernatural ways, um, how he broke through literally dynamic strongholds, just keeping people from understanding the gospel. And, And when the Holy Spirit would reveal things to them, hey, this is kind of what's happening here and this is what you need to pray against, it was uncanny how like the scales just fell from, fell from people's eyes. Like people understood the gospel. People were accepting Christ. Real warfare. But that's not even the part that I want to highlight. The crazy part that I want to highlight is going to be related to us being attentive and being alert. Is they, um, in an interview, had expressed that they had come to the United States for a period of time. Um, I forget if it was like a break or to do some other kind of work. And after spending an extended period of time here in the U.S., the wife told the husband she wanted to go back to the Middle East where they're in danger when there's all this crazy stuff happening. And the reason being, she said, is that she can feel this sense of spiritual apathy and like lack of clarity and lack of staying attentive, closing in on them. This this sense of spiritual complacency just closing in on them. And they're like, we don't, we don't want to go to that. We don't want to go to that. And it was, it hit me 
Because one of the things that they were basically saying is that in America, in, a, in this place of comfort, you know, we're not persecuted for our faith. One of the things that they feel, and I believe this too, that Satan constantly is using against the church is using comfort to lull us to sleep spiritually. And that's a war tactic, by the way. If you can lure your enemy to not be on guard, they're more likely to fall. That's a war tactic. Because we're in a war, like a real war right now. Let me tell you something. We need to take this so seriously. When you see things happening in society and you're like, why is the country going this way spiritually? Why are they doing these things? There's a reality behind that that's energizing it. And it's not simply on like the national global level. It's on the individual level too. If you have a friend or family member that you've been trying to share the gospel with, you've been trying to explain to them things of God and there's resistance or there's hostility. There is a demonic presence behind that. And I'm not necessarily saying that they're possessed or something, but Satan is out there and he's working. And that's just the truth. And for us as believers, we need to understand we have a part to play in this war. Are we going to get into the fight? Are we going to use the spiritual weapons that God has called us to use and fight? And they do work. One one area of scripture, and this will be one of the things I'll mention right before we close. One of the areas of scripture that I love talking about prayer is when it talks about the fact that in James 5, uh, verses 16 through 18, it says that the prayer of a righteous person, a prayer of a righteous man, a prayer of a righteous woman is powerful and effective. And what I particularly love about that section of scripture is that James doesn't simply say, hey, prayer is powerful. He goes on very specifically to explain not only is prayer of a righteous person powerful, you don't need to be special to be powerful in prayer. You don't need to be some like super possible to be powerful in prayer. He mentions Ezekiel and he says, or he mentions Isaiah and he says he was a man that had a normal nature like ours. And he prayed and you know, and you know the story, he prayed, God held back the rain. He prayed again, started raining again. This was a sign of judgment with things God was dealing with at the time. We don't have time to get into the whole story, but the point is he was saying is that this man of God, who we so revere, had a normal nature like ours. He was not a superman. He didn't reach some level that's inaccessible to you or me. He was an ordinary person who prayed in faith and it did some amazing things. Brethren, I want us to be inspired to be praying continually. Praying when you get stuck in traffic. Praying when you're having a hard day at work, praying when you're having a hard day with the kids, praying when you're out there sharing the gospel, like literally whatever, because things are not just simply natural. Everything has a spiritual component to it. And trust me, Satan will use anything to get at you. He'll even use church to get at you. If he can, if he can play that card, he'll do that. He'll use an illness to get at you. He'll use even everyday little frustrations if somehow it can get him an opening into your soul, into your spirit. And so the last part that I want to end on is is a section of encouragement for us all. So we know that here in Daniel 10, this basically ends with, with the angel explaining to Daniel, this is why I've been delayed, right? And, and 
I'm here now. I'm going to explain to you the things that are to come concerning your, your people, Israel. The first point here of encouragement that I want to make is that God is more powerful than Satan and his angels. I don't want to leave giving some kind of impression that this is somehow a one-to-one equal fight between good and evil, because it's not. And we know this. We know that God is the one who created everything, including the heavenly host, including the demons before they fell, right? He created all things. And we also know that scripture indicates that evil ultimately cannot move without the Lord's permission and purpose. This in and of itself is like a whole nother topic, but God can use evil in a sinless way to accomplish his purposes. Some examples of this, right? We have Job, the book of Job, very clear example. Satan could not go beyond specific bounds to hurt Job without God's express permission. And before he could even do anything, he had to have God's permission. And for God's purposes, this was a, a, a test and a trial that he allowed. Another great example about this too, of, of the Lord's sovereignty, his control over Satan and his demons. In Mark 5, we have the, the demons of Legion who had possessed that one man. And when they came before Christ, they were shaking. They, they said, what have you to do with us? Oh, son of God, have you come to torment us before the time? They were in fear. And when Jesus told them they had to go, it's not like they had a, a chance of saying no. Like G- Jesus's very words were the power that forces them out. And then when they were like, okay, 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 we're going to go, but can you at least send us into the pigs? They couldn't even possess something else unless God said, okay, you can go and do that. That's how powerful God is. Even by a word, he can bind spiritual realities. And in James 2, we know that it says even even demons believe in God. Even they know that God is real and exists, and they tremble because they know you can't trifle with God. So I don't want us to think that somehow this is an equal thing, you know, somehow that God's purposes might be able to fail. They can't fail. But currently, God is allowing this fight between good and evil. And this brings us to the second part of encouragement that I want to give to us. And then we have one last part. Suffering, waiting, pain is very confusing. But, and and this is my personal testimony, I can honestly say the amazing things that I'm enjoying in my life now, literally from work to my current walk with the Lord, even my marriage actually has come through times of testing. I would even say like greater emotional health and faith when I chose to trust God has come through times of trial and testing. And we see in scripture, there are several things that God is doing in permitting these things. The first thing that I want to say is that he's allowing the genuineness of our experiences, of our volition, of our world and worship. Um, Man, I almost wish I could give a second sermon about this, but I'm not going to. But we live in a real world. We can make real choices, real decisions. And if God did not permit that, 
not only would our experiences essentially be meaningless, and they really would be, our worship of God would not be true worship. The whole point of the worship and glory of God is this is something that we have given to him willingly. This is something that we have seen God's glory and we say, this is good. I want to honor you. I want to worship you. And we give that to him. So God in allowing us the freedom to do that is what makes that profound. But we also know too, through a whole bunch of verses that God is purifying our faith. First Peter 117 talks about this, that the fact that we should rejoice when we go through trials, our faith is more precious than gold and he's refining it. And I would actually even make the argument that trials, if we submit to God, actually help us to persevere in faith. Trials actually are the thing that galvanizes it, that strengthens it. But we also know that this is also working for us an eternal weight of glory. God is going to give us something that perhaps could not be accomplished through the working of these purposes. And so the last thing here is we need to trust God, believers. We need to have faith and we need to understand God loves you. And if there's one thing that I really want you to get here, God loves you. Keep moving, keep fighting. Do not give up. And I'm saying this from a very tender place. I have several people on my heart right now that I've been praying for who have been through really hard times. And as a result, they've been walking away from God. And it's something that really breaks my heart. It's a few people that I've, I've known for years. I've done ministry with them. And the hard times have just made them say no to God. And it's a mistake. Keep moving. God loves you. You are wanted. And you have what you need to fight the battle. When we leave here, I want us to have this idea that everything we see around us has a spiritual reality. You have a part to play. And I'm going to close with two verses here. One is from 1 John 4, 4. It says here, you are of God, little children. And have overcome them because he, which is Jesus, who is in you, is greater than he, Satan, who is in the world. And then the second verse is John 16, 33. And I almost picture in my head that when John wrote this in first John, he was brought back to the words of Jesus here years that happened years ago. And here's what Jesus said in John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for the fact that you have given us information that we would not have known otherwise. Thank you, Lord, for showing us and telling us that circumstances do not indicate your love for us, Lord. My biggest prayer right now, God, is that when we are in good times, we would see your blessing. When we are in hard times, Lord, we would cling to you. If we need to ask questions, we ask questions. If we need to mourn, we mourn. If we need to lament, we lament. You can take it. But Lord, strengthen us to not give up, Father God. Strengthen us to not give up on day 20, when on day 21, the breakthrough is right there. Because that's a reality. And you've given us, Lord, a part to play in this battle. Because you want us, Lord, to share in your glory. 
And so I just pray that we would go forth right now feeling equipped to do so, that we would see every moment of our lives, Lord, even the moments that seem mundane, that seem ordinary, as part of a spiritual opportunity. And please help us to trust you. In your name, amen.